You're right. There has been this disinvestment, um, and it has been gradual over decades. So to climb that $26 billion mountain, or however large it is, is not something that can be done overnight. I don't think that's realistic. It's going to have to take um, a number of years to, to do that. But, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first steps. That's Gary Hart, former California state legislator. He's joining us this week for more Adventures in Ed Funding, the series where we bring you into the surprisingly fascinating world of schools, money, and California's future. I'm Paul Richmond, your guide. On this episode, we continue exploring some crucial history about school finance, including how California slid into such a deep funding hole and how we might climb back up. Along the way, former Senator Hart shares his insights gained from serving two decades as a representative from Santa Barbara County, including 11 of those years as chair of the Senate Education Committee. He also later served as Secretary of Education for Governor Gray Davis, and he founded the California State University Institute for Education Reform, located on the CSU Sacramento campus. I thought you would be perfect to give us some perspective on some of the legislative issues in particular, and especially in part because, you know, now that um, you're no longer in the legislature, we know you can speak more freely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not sure perfect is the right characterization, but uh, yeah, I can speak more freely, but I've been away from the building for a long time, so I'm not necessarily on top of everything. So Uh caveat for a little bit. (laughs) Duly noted. Before we jump into the issues, I asked Gary to share a bit more about his background, including what led him into education and ultimately to elected office. I'm a product of the public school system here in California, and it was, it was great for me. I was very fortunate to have good teachers and good schools. After college, I ended up uh, teaching. I actually went back. My first full year teaching job was in the school that um, I graduated from, so all of a sudden I was... Um, a colleague of my former teachers. It was hard for me to call them by their first name, but, you know, it, it was fun. So then you're teaching for a number of years, and then what motivated you to decide to run for elected office? Well, I was a product of the 1960s of student protests. I was very involved in the civil rights movement. I worked some in Mississippi to help in desegregation, and I was also very involved in the anti-Vietnam War effort. And as a result of those um, activities, I ended up running for Congress at the ripe old age of 26 from my hometown of Santa Barbara. I lost, but subsequently um, ran for the state assembly, lost again. And then the third time was the charm and I was elected to the state assembly. So my involvement um, really was generated by civil rights and foreign policy, particularly Vietnam. Um, And then I ended up in the state legislature and um, those issues weren't weren't prominent, but I had an opportunity to serve on the education committee. And I wasn't sure I really wanted to because I thought it'd be nice to do some other things, but I was persuaded and I'm glad I was to serve on the education committee. And that led to, um, you know, 20 years of involvement mm-hmm. in uh, education legislation and policy here in California. Mm-hmm. You say that very humbly, but in, in those 20 years, you you're put your stamp on a lot of the major education policies uh, that happened in California during those two decades? Um, 
Yes, and you know, I was fortunate because the, the timing was right for me to be chairman of the Education Committee and to hold that position for a long time. Uh, the, the Democrats had strong majorities, and so I was in a position to get a lot of legislation enacted. There was a challenge, and that was that for the most of, of that time period, we had Republican governors, Pete Wilson uh, and George Dumagian. So you not only had to appeal to your Democratic constituents, but there was one very important Republican constituent, the, the governor, and so it made it uh, a challenge, and you had to listen very carefully to how can you do something you want to do, but also um, make modifications that are going to make the legislation credible to a governor who has to sign it. When you were uh, teaching, did you ever think that at some point you'd be in, in Sacramento making decisions at a statewide level about education? Not really. I always had a strong interest in, in politics. Um, a lot of social studies teachers um, and history teachers uh, do. But no, I really didn't think that that was going to be a pathway, in part because it seems so um, such an uphill journey with fundraising and all the other things that kind of go on in campaigns. So I, and it wasn't something I was particularly interested in doing. I thought there were other ways that I could make a contribution. Gary served in the State Assembly from 1974 to 1982, and in the Senate from 1982 to 1994. So, unfortunately, that time period coincides with when there was a dramatic disinvestment in our public schools. Um, And I'm not (laughs) not trying to make any correlation. What, what in your opinion, uh, what caused the disinvestment? Well, I don't think it was so much a a disenchantment with what was going on in the schools. I think there were outside factors. In this case, I think there were two or three factors that played an important role. The most important being uh, property values in California for real estate for homes took off in the 1970s. And I know that well because the communities that I represented in Santa Barbara County, the property values went really sky high. And there are a lot of people living on fixed incomes. They weren't necessarily poor, but they weren't rich. Uh, Not everyone in Santa Barbara is rich. And people living on fixed incomes were having to pay much larger property tax bills all of a sudden. And it, uh, it, you know, ignited a firestorm. In addition to that, uh, in 1978, when Proposition 13 was passed, that was the middle of President Jimmy Carter's presidency. And there was a term called stagflation, which meant that the economy was not growing, but there was very significant inflation, double-digit inflation. So again, people who are living on fixed incomes, um, or even people who do have jobs, the economic circumstances that they were faced with during that time period were very bad. I think there was one other factor in addition to real estate uh, values and the serious economic problems that the country was facing, and that is the demographics of California were changing. It used to be back in the 50s and 60s that close to 50% of the voters in California were, were parents who had children in the schools. And when you have that kind of situation, those voters tend to be more supportive of the schools. By the time of the passage of Proposition uh, 13, it had dropped to around 25 or 30 percent, which is a very significant decline. The electorate was becoming older. They didn't have as much personal investment in the schools, and therefore um, their willingness, I think, to vote for things related to education was diminished. So real estate values, 
bad economic times, changing demographics, I think all contributed to the passage of Proposition 13 and, as you characterized it, the disinvestment in public education. Mm-hmm. As you reflect back on your time in the legislature, are, are there some things now that you wish you would have tried to maybe change the trajectory that school funding was on? Well, the, the one area, you can't change the demographics, right. you can't change the <laughs> national economy, but the property tax situation could have and should have been addressed in a way that did not result in this rigid uh, meat axe approach that was Proposition 13. And there was an effort in the legislature in 1977 and 1978 to try to bring about uh, property tax r- relief that would address some of these concerns that people had. But it wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been. In my community in Santa Barbara, it was by far the number one issue, and I was doing all that I could in the legislature to make it um, more of an issue. But the legislative leadership um, didn't see it quite as strongly as some of us did. And there were also some very significant differences between the Assembly and the Senate and how they wanted to approach the problem. And they just didn't reach, you know, a good resolution. And as a result of that, since nothing significant got done, this initiative was the only ball game in town. And people who felt very strongly about the issue ended up voting for Proposition 13. Mm-hmm. And Proposition 13, just as a reminder, was the property tax measure that put strict limits on how much assessments could increase each year. It also removed the ability of school districts and other local governments to levy taxes with a majority vote. That Proposition 13 from 1978 is not to be confused with the new Proposition 13 that will be on the March 3, 2020 statewide ballot. That number 13 is a perfectly positive proposition to put forward a desperately needed statewide bond to help build and modernize school facilities. Fast forward a decade now to 1988, when voters approved Proposition 98, the ballot measure we described in our prior episode. The intent with that measure was to lift school funding up to among the top 10 states in the nation. When we talked with some some education advocates, They felt like if you look back at Prop 98 and what ended up happening was that governors and legislatures found ways to manipulate it or make it only the absolute minimum instead of the floor that it was supposed to be. So I'm curious when when you hear sort of analysis like that, that, well, the legislature and governor, they really went out of their way to manipulate this proposition to make sure that it didn't have the outcome that voters intended. As somebody that was in, on the inside, does, does that bother you to hear that kind of analysis? Well, a little bit, because manipulation, I don't think, is uh, um, an accurate characterization of the motivation or what actually took place. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Proposition 98 was you know, trying to develop a particular formulaic approach And when you have difficult economic times and a serious downturn, Proposition 98 didn't work perfectly well to address those kinds of concerns. So there had to be some modifications in 98 to address these serious shortfalls that might take place. I mean, one of the things I've learned as a legislator, um, writing good laws, it's a complicated business. And doing it by the initiative process, particularly when it comes to budgets, um, I think is a mistake. Uh, This was a a classic form of um, ballot box budgeting, 
where one powerful interest group, an interest group that I agreed with a lot, but basically said, here's the budget, we're going to carve out a certain percentage for ourselves, and everybody else can sort of fight over the crumbs uh, that are remaining. It's just not a good way to do business to have these automatic um, formulas. The other aspect of Proposition 98 that um, I think is important to mention is it was so damn complicated. It's not a good system if people don't understand and they feel like they're just kind of getting gamed by these technical um, manipulations that I think took place as much on the part of the supporters of Proposition 98 who wrote the thing as it did from any governor or members of the legislature. You want to have things that legislators and the public can understand. And Proposition 98, with all of its uh, convolutions, was very difficult uh, for people to understand. And in a perfect world, then, maybe we wouldn't see so much ballot box budgeting uh, that's correct, and even in a not-so-perfect world, I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty, pretty basic thing that there are a lot of competing interests that are out there, public safety, uh, environmental issues, uh, health and welfare, higher education, K-12 education. You start carving up that, that budget, um, I think you run the risk that some important matters are going to be missed, and it's people who don't have the visibility or the power uh, oftentimes are going to be the people that are left out. Mm-hmm. It's a fact that many decades ago, California was among the top 10 states in per-student spending. Then we had this long slide of disinvestment. In recent years, we've started to climb our way back some. We're around 39th or 40th, still not yet to the national average, let alone the top 10. By some estimates, it would take as much as $26 billion of new funding. So I put the question to Gary. How can California actually climb this imposing mountain? Well, you're, you're right. There has been this disinvestment, um, and it has been gradual over decades. So to climb that $26 billion mountain, or however large it is, is not something that can be done overnight. I don't think that's realistic. It's going to have to take um, a number of years to, to do that. But, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first steps. You know, you want to begin that process. Um, My own feeling is that we need a stable source of funding more than we have now. That's what other states have. They have a property tax that is that is stable throughout time. California, we are in a roller coaster system where we are largely dependent upon the state income tax to fund our schools. So when times are flush like they are now, there is extra money and that can be channeled into the schools. But every time there is a recession, we lose ground. So until that stable source of funding is somehow identified and captured, I think it's going to be very difficult. It seems to me, um, you know, something like the split role proposal that would increase property tax dollars and allocate some of those dollars for the schools might be um, a way to go in terms of providing, you know, some greater stability and getting out of this situation where we're always on this roller coaster doing well during boom times and, you know, falling off the, the railroad tracks, if that's a proper, um, you know, metaphor when, when times are bad. The split role. That's a topic we're going to hear a lot more about as the year 2020 progresses. An effort is underway to qualify a ballot measure that would do as Gary suggests and close a loophole that large corporate and commercial property owners have benefited from since the late 1970s. 
As we continue our adventures, I promise we'll encounter many more people with more to say on that topic. One of the things that education advocates have been saying a lot these these last couple of years is, look, California could find a way, if the state really wanted to, we could get our school funding up to at least the top 10 among states. But the reason we can't do that is because at the end of the day, there's just not enough political will. That everybody will say that they're for the schools and that they want to increase funding, but when push comes to shove and you have to perhaps cast a vote to raise revenue, there's just not enough political will in Sacramento. Um, What do you think about that? I think uh, there's some truth to that, but there's also other parts of political will that I think the education community ought to be taking a look at, which is, you know, there's some, there's some waste and some lesser priorities in state government. Uh, reforming our, you know, our tax system is one that relies more upon services for sales tax um, as opposed to such a um, disproportionate reliance upon the income tax. The political will needs to rest, I think, with some of these education groups as well to help us identify where there are sources of waste or lesser priorities and for them to get on board with some of these um, matters rather than just to say all we need to do is you know, raise revenue. Um, I'm for more revenue. I'm for the split role. Um, so I think there's some other things that can and should be done. And to have this very narrow focus by the education advocacy groups is certainly understandable, But if we're going to be talking about political will and blame it all on the governor and the legislature and not say that there are some sacrifices or some difficult decisions that some of these groups are going to have to take as well, I think it rings a little hollow to say it's all the governor and the legislature's fault and and we don't bear any responsibility to to make some of these tough choices ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what can you give an example of what when you're talking about the tough choices um, what kind of things are those? Well, when I was in the legislature, um, and I think until recent years, it's the state prisons. State prisons uh, were taking up much more of the state budget. They used to be 5% of the state budget, and they went to 10% of the state budget when it was just the reverse for higher education it was going from 10% mm-hmm. to 5%. And the reason for that was that we were going crazy on uh, penalties for you know, people who are involved in criminal activity. You know, that's one example. Our health care costs are, as a country, are out of control. That's where the real growth in the state budget is, is in um, Medi-Cal and some of these other pro- programs. And it's not just because we're serving more people, but it's some of the costs that are associated with those programs. So choices and competing priorities among different state programs. Yes, Another push-pull relationship has to do between the state and local school districts in terms of who has the, the discretion to make the decisions about where the money is spent. So for a number of years, we had, as you know, the uh, system with categorical programs where a lot of the money was sent from the state to districts that they had to use for specific purposes. We've shifted some in the last seven years to a system where theoretically the districts have more discretion about how to spend their money. I'm curious where you think the right balance 
should be struck in this tension between state and local discretion? Um, it's a great question. I don't think anyone's got a magic formula as to what you know it should be, and, and it's always going to go back and back and forth. When I was elected to the legislature, we began to establish some of these categorical programs, and I think it's important to mention that some of our initial categorical programs were earmarked towards poor children. The system got kind of out of control with so many different categoricals, and it got to be you know a, a, a terrible mess. When I was leaving the legislature a long time ago, we were beginning to reform and try to have some block grants within these categoricals so that there would be these monies that would be used for particular purposes, which might have to do with equity, but might have to do with professional development for teachers, um, but give broad discretion within those categories. And I thought that was uh, the way to go. I worry that if the money goes entirely to the local school districts to determine how the money is spent, uh, we will revert back to the system that existed prior to my election, which is the collective bargaining process uh, dictated the way monies were spent. So it went mostly for teacher salaries, uh, which I can understand from the teacher standpoint is where they would like to see most of the money go. But the needs of poor children oftentimes I think are neglected through that process. And when you have political pressure at the local level, it's often the most educated, the most sophisticated parents that know how to lobby to get what they want for their school or for their children. So I think there was some value to some of these categorical programs. I don't think we need to revert to 30 or 40 different categorical programs, but I worry that we have gone too far. It must have been difficult as a legislator. You've got a lot of competing interests in organizations saying, we, you need to do it this way, you need to do it that way. Um, and they're in a way, they're all... Friends, I mean, you you care about all the same things that that they do. How do you process that as a legislator? How do you try to to make the right decisions, the best decisions that you can when you're when you're getting a lot of advocacy from different places? Well, there's no easy answer to that, and I'm uh, you know certainly subject to some of the, all, all the pressures that are out there because you want to get uh, reelected. But I I worked really hard to try to not pay too much attention to these special interest groups, uh, you know, even in the best sense of that word. What I tried to do was, number one, remember my own experience as a classroom teacher and as a student. Um, Two, to get back and spend time in classrooms. Don't get too far removed from the schools. It's so easy to get insulated in a place like Sacramento. So every three or four years when I was in the legislature, the legislature was out of session for three months out of the year. I would go back and take a regular teaching assignment at the high school level. And I always found it eye-opening. It's so easy to forget how challenging and difficult it is and how many students um, are struggling. And then I also really believe that um, Research and policy analysis has a really important role. So reading um, publications, uh, and I also worked very hard to try to identify outstanding uh, union leaders, outstanding individual classroom teachers, and listening to them. So you can't ignore, you don't want to ignore an organization that represents tens of thousands of members, but at the same time, having these other points of view who also care about the schools is, um, I think, extremely important. 
As my conversation with former Senator Gary Hart wrapped up, I asked him if there was anything we hadn't talked about that was top of mind for him in terms of education funding or where we're headed as a state. I think trying to change our tax system, as we've talked about, is important. Um, As someone who was a classroom teacher and spent a lot of time in the legislature focusing on uh, classroom teacher issues, I still think that's the most important thing we can be doing and people can understand is the support for individual classroom teachers to make sure that every child has a dedicated, capable uh, teacher and those teachers get the kind of professional development and support systems that they need. To me, that's the most important thing that we ought to be focusing on. Many thanks again to Gary Hart for being our special guest and for his dedicated service to California. Our series is presented by CASBO, the California Association of School Business Officials. Molly Schlange is the president. Molly McGee-Hewitt is the executive director. Our sound, editing, and original music is all done by the one and only Tommy Dunbar. Original artwork was created by 2B Communications. And your trusty guide each week, that's me, Paul Richmond. And I'm truly grateful for the opportunity to spend time with you. We know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and we appreciate your flying with us. Be sure to join us next time when we continue our tour of major moments in the life of Ed Fundy. We'll arrive finally on the doorstep of the 21st century's most significant school finance reform. Hint, its initials are L, C, F, and F. Until next time, play us out, Tommy.